I'm Rico. And I'm Jessica. And this is the Always the Critic podcast where a couple of friends review the latest movies, except we literally have zero qualifications to do so. Jessica, how are you doing today? I'm doing phenomenal. I just decorated a pumpkin this weekend. <clears throat> and I, you're laughing already because you know what I did. So I created a Jurassic Park themed Velociraptor popping out of a pumpkin. And it was something else. I'm a changed woman. I hope that I win the office pumpkin decorating contest. I, there's like serious money on the line. And I have never been more committed to like winning all the contests this year. So because not only are you doing the jack-o'-lantern, which I saw the picture. It was yeah, great. I know. But you're also doing a costume contest yes. as well. Yeah. And it's all via Zoom, but then we have to submit our photos. So now right. I'm like, oh, no, I have to plan like a photo shoot to like do this right because I'm, I'm so extra. I want to win. Right. Exactly. So yeah. uh, we won't give it away. Uh, on the next episode, we'll talk about it or maybe... He'll post it. Maybe on, I'll post it. On yeah. uh, on the Always the Critic <laughs> Instagram page. Who yeah. knows? We'll see. Uh, my weekend was not as exciting as yours, <laughs> making jack-o'-lanterns or anything like that. But I hung out with the with the siblings. We hung out. We, we barely do because everybody's always so busy. So it's kind of mm-hmm. hard. Uh, but we got to hang out and we watched a movie. Well, you and I oh. did. Yes. And that is the movie we're going to talk about. But before we talk about that movie, if this is your first time listening, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We are on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, and we're on Google Podcasts, and many more. And if you like us, go ahead and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars goes a long way for us. That's right. And come check us out on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and reviews. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Always Critic Pod. And if you're a fan, please, please consider becoming a patron. It's a great way for you to get involved and show your support. You can check out the page on patreon.com slash always critic pod. So today we are talking about a brand new science fiction movie that is based on a book, a very famous book, and that is Dune. That's right. Uh, Now, this is the book that is written by Frank Herbert uh, from 1965. Jessica, why don't you go ahead and tell us what Dune is about? The letterboxed synopsis reads, Paul Atreides, a brilliant, gifted young man born into a great destiny beyond his understanding, must travel to the most dangerous planet in the universe to ensure the future of his family and his people. As malevolent forces explode into conflict over the planet's exclusive supply of the most precious resource in existence, a commodity capable of unlocking humanity's greatest potential... Only those who can conquer their fear will survive. Now, this movie is directed by Denis Villeneuve. Uh, For those who are unaware of Denis' filmography, he is the director of Arrival, which made our top five movies of the decade of the 2010s. Uh, That is a fantastic movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, He also directed Blade Runner 2049, And Prisoners, which I think also made our top 25 overall, or it came very close. I I just don't think I I haven't seen Prisoners. You haven't seen Prisoners, but I think with my brother's voting and my voting, I think it snuck in, but I'm not sure. I can't remember now. It's all a haze. But go ahead and check that out on your podcast feed. Scroll back. 
listen to our favorite movies of the 2010s. It's it's a pretty fun episode. Now, the movies written by John Spates, Denis Villeneuve, and Eric Roth, and the movie stars a cavalcade of people. <laughs> so the movie does star Timothy Chalamet as Timothy. Paul. Yes, Timothy <laughs> as Paul Atreides, Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica, Oscar Isaac as Duke Leto Atreides, Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho, Josh Brolin as Gurney Halleck, Javier Bardem as Stilgar, Zendaya, or no, Zendaya, sorry, I said it wrong <laughs> this time, Zendaya as Chani, Dave Bautista as Beast Robin Harkonnen, and Stellan Skarsgård as Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. The music is by our boy Hans Zimmer. <laughs> really leaning into the drums that he's been leaning into for like the last 10 years of his career. Like he's like drums are really his thing. Uh, how about you let us know how this was accepted by critics? Okay, so it's currently sitting at an 83% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes and a 91% audience score. That's usually the opposite. Usually the critics like it more than the audience. This time, the audience was all for it, and the critics were a little lower. Um, the critics' consensus reads, Dune occasionally struggles with its unwieldy source material, but those issues are largely overshadowed by the scope and ambition of this visually thrilling adaptation. The audience consensus, on the other hand, says Denis Denis Villeneuve. Yes, you got it. Lord. You got it. Okay, Denis Villeneuve's Dune looks and sounds amazing. And once the admittedly slow building story gets you hooked, you'll be on the edge of your seat for the sequel. So this movie had a pretty good opening. On Not bad. Not I, bad at I gave all. you a little hint that it was going to be a, a good weekend for Dune because I said it's done better in pre-sales than No Time to Die did. Yes. I did not expect it to be better in terms of box office numbers than No Time to Die. And I was proven right because uh, it did come out to a $40.1 million domestic opening. Less than No Time to Die, but still a success in the eyes of HBO, Warner Brothers, HBO Max, all the different iterations (laughs) that they have. So apparently this is the best performing day and date HBO Max release so far that they have done same day release on HBO Max. Right. The previous movie that did well was Kong versus Godzilla, Godzilla versus Kong, sorry. (laughs) $32.7 million opening weekend. This one did 40.1. Already around the world, this was released before the United States uh, in other places around the world. It has a total of $220 million. Wow. Around the world. So I would say it's pretty successful. That's a pretty successful. I mean, who knows what the budget. Well, yeah, the budget, the budget is in the low 200s, 200 million. So maybe with enough time, you know, in the next couple weeks, maybe it'll get to its number. Uh, This movie, one of the big things about it is that for those who don't know, and I don't think it's too much of a secret to say that this is part one of of a i want to say a two-part movie series Uh, i don't know it all depends on what denis villeneuve is thinking i've i've heard 
you know, through like trades and stuff like people have spoken that it's a two parter, but the sequel has not been announced yet by HBO mm-hmm. or by Warner Brothers. So we're kind of waiting to see if this thing is greenlit, green which mm-hmm. based on the number that it's done, I can't see them not, you know, greenlighting it. I can't see them not unless this was like an utter failure. I, I can't see them saying no to a sequel to it. So. I mean, we're in year two of the pandemic and it's made $220.7 million worldwide being released simultaneously on HBO. I feel like they're probably thinking, hey, this is going to only go up. And if this is if HBO is eating money, then eating money off our profit, then whenever we release the sequel, mm-hmm. we won't do the HBO simultaneous release and it'll just be money in our pocket. Right. And apparently this was also the most popular content day of date release as well. Uh, the most viewed movie in its opening weekend on HBO Max since they started mm-hmm. doing the day and date releases. So all signs are positive right now. We're just waiting for the green light to be said and done by Warner Brothers. Now, Jessica, this is not our first foray. Well, when I say us, I mean like the general audience. This is not our first foray into Dune. Am I right? No, no, it's not. It <laughs> so we ha- we have the source material from the 60s. And then we also have the movie from 1984, which stars Kyle McLachlan. McLachlan. Man, I suck with names. Wow. Okay, so (laughs) Kyle over here played Paul, and it also starred Patrick Stewart and Max von Sydow. The 80s movie encompasses the entirety of the book, and it is pretty painful to watch. (laughs) I, I did have the chance to watch it it is on hbo if you want to watch the 80s dune um so that's out and then there's also a three-part miniseries that was released in the year 2000 so 21 years ago yeah quite a bit of time so that is quite enough preamble i think we could go ahead and discuss the movie so jessica i'm gonna ask you what did you think of dune it was very good in terms of the parts right the cinematography is gorgeous. The cast is prestige, wonderful, no issues there. I would say the problem arises with the general story that's very complex and not very easy to follow. Mm. And this is coming from someone who's like into th- movies that have a big lineage, like Lord of the Rings, for instance, like Harry Potter, for instance that are part of larger bodies of work, you know? And I will say that when I left the theater, I told you it left me feeling the same way as I felt watching like Fellowship of the Ring, where I was like, oh, there's more to come. It feels very incomplete right now. And it left me with like that unsatisfied feeling of like, it's not resolved. I have heard the same complaint from people. Um, I would, I, I mean, I I think it is a complaint because I'm not looking at the larger, I feel like I can't really judge it too accurately when this is, I'm not too familiar with the source material mm -hmm. and this is gigantic world building 
that's happening at the same time. It is a lot of world building. So much heavy on the world building. And it's very political as well, which I felt like I understood the politics way more than I did the cultures of the people and places. So that was also a little bit harsh on on me personally. I think ultimately I liked it. I didn't love it. And I'm not sure why I liked it. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So on, on my side, I totally ate up the world building. Oh, okay. I ate it up. Uh, I actually understood like the mechanics of not only the the people and the cultures and the settings, but also the politics as well. Um, so I know that a lot of people will say like it's dense and mm-hmm. it is. It is. It is dense. But I found myself understanding it all like with that one sitting that I've only I've only seen it once so far. I do want to see it again. Um, now, one of the major problems that I had with the viewing of the movie, not the movie itself, was that we watched it in Dolby. We watched a lot of our movies in Dolby. But I noticed that a lot of the dialogue just we were I was missing out on. I was hurting on because the because the bass is so heavy. Mm. In in certain moments that you're kind of missing clips of dialogue. My so, entire being is vibrating. Yeah, that's true. I'm missing their mumbling. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So there were a couple moments that I sought out, you know, like on HBO Max. Like I went to a certain clip so I can remember. Oh, I remember there was a moment here that I didn't fully understand what they were saying. So I went back and I and I grabbed those clips with subtitles just to read it all. And, you know, it it really, it fills in everything very well. I think I love the characters. I love the idea of what the main character is supposed to represent to to the people of this story. That's very easy to understand. Very easy. Especially because we come from a Judeo-Christian side of the world. Yeah, so. (laughs) And we're Christians ourselves. So, like, it just. The messianic story is super easy to understand. But I love the way the movie treats it as an actual religion to certain people and the way he is viewed like, you know, like a Christ-like figure, pretty much. I thought it was very well handled, very well done. Um, now, speaking on what you said about the incomplete, I do feel that because towards the end of that movie, you're so trained as a movie audience to like expect a climax to a movie Precisely. like where it just ramps up to a certain point and then you know we get the big bang and so this movie not necessarily a spoiler but doesn't really end in that fashion it, it it's definitely different so, it makes a point of saying this is just the beginning hey literally <laughs> yeah literally does say that and i still felt like okay this is not a bad point to leave off as long as I know that there's more to come and what's coming will be something pretty exciting. Uh, the movie does hint at stuff that could possibly be happening in the future. So overall, though, I came away from this experience as really enjoying myself on this movie. Okay. Really you, you did seem very jazzed about it. And I left the theater kind of a little more stunned and like mm-hmm. a little more shell shocked by Hans Zimmer's score. and. Yeah. Um, 
I don't think that I was necessarily excited after mm. watching the movie. Yeah, I was definitely on you the excited side. Yeah, I was. I, I have to admit it. So um, what did you give the movie as a score? I think I ended up giving it a three and a half out of five. I gave it a four out of five. Okay, so yeah, yeah. that's yeah. I'm, <laughs> but I'm I feel like high. it's a big. I feel like it is a big difference. It's a big our... difference between our two scores. Like your three and a half is like, I wouldn't say tepid, but like it's cautious. Yeah, it's a cautious three and a half. Mine is an excited four, mm-hmm. pretty much, uh, with the possibility of it going up. You know, as time goes, you know, and that's I always say that like these scores that we give are just are initial not set in viewing. Initial viewing, not set in stone. When we rewatch things, things go up and down. Our opinions change slightly. So, like a perfect example for me would be Hot Fuzz. When I first watched it, three and a half. Now it's a four and a half movie for me. <laughs> oh like, God. yeah, because it's become such a favorite of mine over time. Time changes things, it lets you see stuff differently and, you know, new perspectives. So, being a four, it, you know, it could start off as a four and maybe it goes up or maybe it goes down over time. Who knows? But we'll we'll see how that goes. Before we get into spoilers, is there anything else that you wanted to mention about the movie? Zendaya's screen time is a travesty. I don't know why she was on the press tour, really. <laughs> That's another thing people have complained about. Yeah, I have one complaint Echo, as well. Yeah, I, I, I can understand the why people are upset about her screen time but uh, my guess is there is a larger purpose going forward oh absolutely so i mean i've seen the 84 dune so i know her role is much larger in part two if they make part two yes so i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of reserve judgment on that but yeah it does kind of suck that like some people are doing press for a movie the thing is like they have dave bautista they have stellan skarsgård they have javier Bardem, josh brolin jason momoa like star studded cast and they still decided to have zendaya like front and center she, she was pretty heavy on the marketing yeah she was that's my thing is like yeah that's fair. i don't mind that you have her on the cover i don't mind that she's on like a couple of q a's for you know whatever e-magazine i don't care but for her to be like with Timothée like the whole time. That's how you sell a movie, man. <laughs> Remember uh, the the Suicide Squad just recently? Yeah. Like someone like Pete Davidson and um, Nathan Fillion and all these people like, you know, are doing press for this movie. Yeah. And they are n- barely in it, like yeah. almost not in it pretty much. Right. So, hey, you got to sell a movie, man. So you put your stars front and center. You let them go on the talk shows, talk it up, hype it up. You want people to watch the movie. So I get it. It kind of sucks for the amount of time that she's in the movie. But at the same time, like this is going to be, let me think, is this going to be the fourth big movie that she's going to be in this year? Because she had Malcolm and Marie earlier Mm -hmm. this year. Um, I feel like we just talked about her not that long ago. Why am I blanking on a movie that she recently did? Did she do a recent movie? Uh, obviously, we have Dune right now. And then later on this year, we have Spider-Man No Way From Home. Or No Way Home. Sorry. 
So I know there's those three movies, and I feel like she was in one movie. Oh, she <laughs> She was, wasn't she? Space Jam. That's what it was. <laughs> she was her Lola voice. Bunny. Yeah, she she was Lola Bunny. She had a voice acting credit in that. So yeah, pretty big year for Zendaya. Pretty big year. Not bad. Anything else you want to say before we get into spoilers? No, I think we're good. All right. So let's go ahead and let's talk about spoilers for Dune. The greatest trick. Houston, we have a problem. I am the father. I see dead people. The devil ever pulled. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Was convincing the world. You can't handle the truth. He didn't exist. Oh, what's in the box? All right. Time to talk about spoilers for Dune. Now, where should we start? Should we just start from the beginning or do you want to tackle like certain character arcs first? I think I think the big thing is Paul, which is played by Timothy. Right. He's our protagonist. He's our protagonist. Um, let me talk about some of the things that I really like concerning Paul and the things that surround him. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy like him being taught what they use as the voice. Which is, I don't know how to describe it because I don't know if it's some type of like external thing that he's using or it's just his actual voice, but it's like changes pitch with distortion and it's a way of commanding people to do things. Right. Which I found very interesting. And the way uh, Rebecca Ferguson uses it very well in the middle of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the way that the I'm trying to remember the 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 order the the order of the witches pretty much um uh, Bene Gesserit the Bene Gesserit witches yeah I well, don't remember but the, it's like Bene Gesserit main, yeah the Bene Gesserit and so especially the main woman who uses it on Paul early on and Paul is offended and is like how dare you use the voice on me like I loved like that so, yeah, that lady shows up and tests him with a box. The box contains pain. I think the original 84 Dune does a better job of articulating what he's feeling. Mm-hmm. Because in that moment, he's feeling like his hand is on fire and is melting away. Mm, I see. And so they do have that visual in the 84 movie where you see his hand like catching fire and like uh, disintegrating. Within the box. And then, of course, you have that moment in both movies where the lady tells him to take his hand out of the box and his hand is completely unscathed, totally fine. And it was a little more powerful in the original. So then in this one, he's just writhing in pain, screaming, kind of gets a handle on his fear and his pain and then takes his hand out and nothing's wrong with his hand. Well, while he has his hand in the box, he is seeing visions and he does see a hand being burned all the way till it's basically almost ash. So you could say that that is him envisioning his hand in the torture of the box. But I understand what you're saying. It's not as clear cut and dry as maybe the original, which by the way, I will go ahead and say I have not seen. So Jessica, you, since you did see it, you're, you're probably going to be one the person who will at least have insight as to how one director did it versus how Denny Villeneuve 
that first director being David I mean, Lynch. I will say that, like, the effects in the original are, like, on Beetlejuice level, like, a lot of uh, stop motion for the worms and a lot of really basic CGI that looks Tron level, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Okay. Um, so it doesn't look very good at all. The cinematography's not there. Um, and they what they do for a lot of the storytelling is that they let you inside each person's head. So there's voiceover for every character, basically. So that you hear their inner monologue of like them wondering what's going on. Paul going, there's something she's not telling me, you know, things like that just to kind of make it easier. But I think it's very distracting in the original and doesn't leave room for nuance or like mystery where this one is leaving room for nuance and mystery. Um, and then a little more performance from the actors versus they come in later and do like all this voiceover work, which doesn't necessarily serve the story. Um, so that's a huge difference from the two of them. I would say that the design of the worms in this one is probably a big talking point for a lot of people because um, the effect of having such a grand movie with beautiful, stunning cinematography and um, these impressive sandworms that are meters and meters and meters long, um, I feel like it's not really... How do I say this? The worms will be a big factor going forward in part two. Mm -hmm. And so I almost feel like we should have gotten a little more of the worms in this part one. We never see them during daytime, really. Oh, well, at the end, you kind of see one of the Fremen riding the worm. Yeah. Which is going to be a huge deal in part two, right? Because you obviously, it's telegraphed that Paul is going to ride a worm. Oh, for sure. (laughs) For sure. That's not, I don't feel like that's very spoiler at all. But um, as far as the impressive nature of this animal or these animals, you just have that like that dusk shot. Right. Paul standing in front of the worm and the worm's like staring him down or I don't know pausing in front of him that I thought that would be in full daylight for some reason. There, there are two other moments, but you don't see the full scale of an actual worm. No. You only see the mouth. Yeah. At both times pretty much. Um, which I think scale wise is something to behold the first time around when, when it's eating the, the spice manufacturing ship. Mm hmm. And it's just like absorbing it into the mouth. It's just ginormous. It, yes. And in the original, my sister actually walked by a few times while we were while I was watching it. And she said, I think I like the design of the original worm better because what they had going was um, like four flaps kind of opening versus a mouth that looks like um, that beast from Star Wars, that sand beast. Um, a Sarlacc? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So instead of it being like the mouth is essentially always open. I see what you're saying. It had those like, it was like four flaps that opened and closed. Got it. Yeah. Um, A lot of people are going to draw comparisons between this and Star Wars. Just because there's a Absolutely. There are a lot of similarities. Yeah. It's a hero's journey in space. In space on a desert (laughs) planet. You know, with... Um, but 
again, this did come out first. No, yeah, it's from so, the 60s and then what Star Wars is was released in 77 and you know, yeah, you can so, get into the minutia of Lucas developing that. Pretty um, much. So I like Paul. I think that I'm a little bit confused about the Tim- Timothée like Chalamet mm-hmm. as a as a an enigma of a person. Okay. And I almost want them to age him up in part two. Hmm. Some time does pass between the events that happen now and when the end game happens in part two. If they make a part two. So I'm almost like, man, give him like a Moses beard, like just like really just make him age a little more because he does look like a little boy. And Zendaya's character literally says that as well. You look like a little boy. Got it. That's like a minor complaint of mine. I think Rebecca Ferguson's character is really interesting. Almost more interesting than than Paul Atreides. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and agree with you. I believe that her character with what she's carrying, like Ferguson does a great job acting in this in this movie, but what she's carrying for that character as being the mother of Paul, trying to, I guess, she's almost trainer. force him to be the savior almost. And having these hidden agendas pretty much because she's in cahoots with the Bene Gesserit. They've been manipulating bloodlines for who knows how long. And she went against their instruction and had a son versus only having women. Right. Which I found to be astounding when, when the mother says that like uh, all this potential wasted on a male. You, and you were you were ordered to have uh, females and you disobeyed us. And I was like, I'm sorry, you can actually choose? That was my thing. It was especially evident in the 84 version where mm-hmm. Lady Jessica says something like, it meant so much to him for referring to the Duke to have an heir. Yeah. They, they, she doesn't say any of that in this version. She's just like, whatever. Like, sorry about it. <laughs> uh, so... Really quick, back to Paul. I will say I did like that when he comes in contact with people and people see him, they will either see him as, oh, he is the so-called Messiah. I'm trying to find the name that they give him. Oh, right. Um, Which I I don't remember. I am looking around and I'm just having a hard time finding it. But... They keep calling him the Messiah. And I love how certain people believe in him and certain people don't. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy that dynamic of, is he really the chosen one? Or is it just uh, people saying that he is? Um, Oh, the Lisan Al-Gaib is Uh is what they call him. Um, Another phrasing for that by the Fremen, the people who live on Arrakis, the voice from the other world. From the outer world, I'm sorry. The voice from the outer world. Uh, prophet. So um, I really enjoy that 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 dynamic of having his hero's journey questioned by people outside of him. Obviously, we are seeing a story that is leading to him being 
that messiah-like figure but coming into his destiny yeah. yeah but i do like that there are challenges along the way that don't make it seem like oh this is just going to be handed to him easily uh he has to come into it on his own he has to make his own choices he has to decide what he's going to do mm-hmm. so i really enjoyed that as part of the story overall all right so Outside, Oscar Isaac. There we go. I was going to so move right distracting into it. for me because he looks so good. He looks so good in this movie. I was taken aback. I think I lost breath. I was like, oh my God, you kept laughing at me because every time he came on screen, I like gasped. I did something. I said something. I was like squirming in my seat because there was no, like he just blew Timothy out of the water. I was like, oh my God. I can't even look at this kid. Like, it's Oscar Isaac for me. Yeah, you were swooning over Oscar Isaac. Oh, my gosh. Um, Every time, like, the first time he came on screen, like, just with that magnificent beard, you just, like, like, you, like, (laughs) sat back up in your chair. So you were really enjoying it. He is a force visually. Visually, he is a force and I did like his relationship with his son, the way mm-hmm. he's like, basically, he's not forcing his son to take the mantle of Duke, but he, he obviously wants his son to do it. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, a great leader doesn't seek it. It's called he's called to it. The Duke is pictured as a very noble figure. And yeah. I don't, I mean, the original 84 movie also does the same, but it also shows way more of the political machinations that are happening outside of a trade, uh, House of Atreides. And in this movie, you basically just have the two houses, the House of Atreides and the Harkonnens going back and forth. You're shown the Baron dealing with his people and saying, oh yeah, we got permission from the emperor to to basically kill all of the House of Atreides. And in the original, you don't just get these two houses. You also see the emperor and his court, and he's visited by this weird time-space-traveling worm. I'm not even sure like what it is, but that is not dealt with at all in this movie and I think the movie's better for that it's just weird unsightly confusing (laughs) to have all of it happening all at once like you have House Atreides House Harkonnen the Emperor and this worm whatever they are like I I don't know there is (laughs) there is one thing I will say it's that I did wish that we would have seen a little more of those back deal machinations that were happening. Yeah. Because we get pretty much one scene or maybe two scenes where we're we're seeing Baron Harkonnen from his side, from House Harkonnen, um, and what they'll do with the Bene Gesserit. Because apparently House Atreides has gained favor that the emperor is jealous, but we have we don't really know enough to know why he's jealous. Is it because a lot of people are joining his side? They can is overthrow because- the emperor again. This is very cleaves heavily to just world history. 
Yeah. Um, when local warlords gain more power than the emperor, mm-hmm. like maybe feudal Japan is a great example of that. Then the emperor starts to get worried. Like these warlords could just overthrow me and like take over. So that does lead to the death of Leto Atreides because he is betrayed by the doctor figure. Uh, and so Harkonnen, House Harkonnen, is coming back to Arrakis. So um, I do want to say that the Baron, Stellan Skarsgård. Yes. Perfect casting. Very good casting. And... I'm afraid that his design is not as disgusting as the 1984 Baron because the 1984 Baron had like pustules and stuff happening on his person and he was like sweating all the time. He just looked wet and it was absolutely revolting. And then they have these scenes of him like eating other people in his like servants and stuff that come I don't even know the people that wait on him are blind and deaf like with their eyes and their ears sewn shut so it's very like you're like shocked by the savagery of this the Harkonnens right in this case you're not quite they're very almost regal in their in their presentation you know he's sitting at elegant sleek tables a lot of mirror effects happening in their i don't know castle so to speak and they're very simple in their design i just don't know like if i like that versus like something that's definitely more disgusting i see what you're saying i wonder if uh denis villeneuve's vision was not to present something as disgusting but just visually marks a tribe of people as bad guys, but not necessarily as horrible, disgusting villains. So that's basically how I feel about House Harkonnen. But let's talk about another tribe of people. Let's talk about the Fremen. Let's do it. Because the movie, I think, does not spend enough time with them. Okay. With how important they seem to be to the story. I think they're essential to the story. (laughs) We hear a lot about them, but we don't actually interact too much with them. Uh, The only people of the Fremen that we actually get to interact with, for the most part, are Javier Bardem's character, Stilgar. Mm -hmm. And we have the judge, I believe, or is she... She's the one that can talk to the emperor. Uh, judge of the change. Yeah. The judge of the change. And that's pretty much it. And then finally we get to the tribe that Stilgar runs where Zendaya is part of. But that's towards the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. So that is one thing that I will say that I, I wish there was a little bit more of. But I'm guessing in part two we'll get a lot of. I wish their eyes were more blue. Mm, yeah, you you did mention that at, after our screening. Yeah, I I didn't feel one way or another about it. I think that it's a cool concept. The concept is cool, where the spice exposure to it will turn the eyes blue. Mm-hmm. So I I have no problem with the way it looks, but I didn't feel strongly one way or another whether it was bad or good. But I can understand 
if there was something that you wanted more out of the coloring of their eyes. I think I did want it to be a little more drastic than what it was. And the trailers seemed to promise it really bright blue. And then it wasn't that blue. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. Um, I will say that I like the scene where they rescue all of those workers from the spice machine. Yes. And they circle around the spice machine as it's being consumed by the sandworm and that was like stunning beautiful visual yeah and at that time the judge of the change is like saying almost like a prayer at that moment uh, that is just on top of the visual imagery Uh, i think this movie i will say that is that there was a lot of lines in the movie that i felt like were really good to hear in the moment Mm -hmm. Uh, that I got to give credit to the writing team. Obviously, they come from the book. I mean, also, the 1984 movie, in watching it, they're lifting entire pieces of dialogue from the 1984 movie. Oh, I I imagine they are. So I almost feel like they saw what was done in the 84 movie, and they were like, we can just remake it and have it be better. Yes, I, I do agree. Uh, so, like, a couple of lines that really stand out for me. Obviously, um, Duncan Idaho, when he talks to Paul, dreams make good stories, but everything important happens when we're awake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoy whenever they're referencing Paul. I think the the judge of the chain, uh, when, he's, when she sees him in the still suit, and notices that he has done a certain thing towards the ankles of the boots. Like he will know your ways as though they are your his own. Yes. Uh, and like she says it as she's like turning away from him. You know, uh, I love the references. That's something like that, that she that the judge of the change says in his head in the original 84 movie. And that part was played by Max von Sydow. Right. So something this movie does is cast people of color. Oh, very true. Very and then true. also bringing these internal monologue things to the forefront and having them actually say them out loud. Um, another aspect that we see is like when Stilgar comes to visit House Atreides for the first time on Arrakis. And as he's leaving and saying that... He, I, I need to be with my people. I need to be elsewhere. He says it in a different way, of course. But then in his language, he says to Paul, I recognize, I recognize you. you. Yeah. So indicating that it's possible that he is that savior. But then right. later on, he calls into question of it. Yeah. So near the end of the movie, he's like, he is not the one. But he could, you know, learn the ways of our people. And He's be young enough that us. he can learn our ways. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, I love the casting doubt of of this figure. Zendaya also, her uh, character of Chani even says, I don't believe you're the uh, Gaib. But uh, if you're... I want you to die with honor. I want you to die with honor. And gives him that... Uh, ceremonial dagger or what have you the 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 chris knife yeah 
which he kept having visions of it throughout the entire story. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know who's going to give it to me. I don't know when, but somebody does. Yeah. And it's her, the yeah. girl that he kept dreaming about. <laughs> the girl that he could not stop dreaming about. Um, Man, so I really enjoy a lot of those things. I do like, like, for example, the fact that because they're on a desert planet, there's not much water, so they have to use the moisture and everything from their bodies to be able to sustain themselves. Can you kind of tell where it's going that it's never rained on this planet? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the Messiah comes. And yeah, no, no. Uh, it's, uh, he's got the voice, you know. Things can happen at the sound of his voice. He is supposedly the man or the mind that can bridge time and space is what they're looking for in this Messiah figure. So, (laughs) I mean, things can happen, which most likely will happen. I I do enjoy that they foster his uh, voice, the voice, so to speak, mm -hmm. way more in this one than than they did in the original. Um, Because after he has his test with the Bene Gesserit lady, mother or whatever they call her, then the mother is like, you should teach him the voice. Ah, I see. Right. So then after that, he learns the voice. But, you know, it's almost like forbidden that he already knows like the ins and outs of the basics of how to do the voice. Yeah, because the Bene Gesserit is chastising lady jessica for teaching him how to do it Mm -hmm. uh and again saying that it's wasted on a male uh which is so funny i love when like lady jessica kind of lets loose like she uses the voice on that aircraft as they're taking them out to the open desert and um she fights stilgar yes and gets the upper hand with a quickness, like I was like, yes, bitch, like quick. Get it. Yeah, I was all into her character. She is a very good character. Plus, she's carrying a child and ugh, so good. So, so I do like that aspect and the fact that it draws so much from basically a biblical standpoint almost of, you know, the Messiah coming. Uh, so that really hooked me as as a story. And, and we see those types of stories all the time in modern, you know, storytelling, you know, whether it's someone like Luke Skywalker, who is the chosen one, Harry Potter, uh, Neo from the Matrix, Superman, Superman, <laughs> like, you know, the, the Christ like figure is something very similar and some very popular to use as a device to be able mm-hmm. to push a story forward plus on top of that also providing a choice to the protagonist does he choose the calling mm. you know now in most of these stories he does choose the he calling does. yeah but i do like the fact that it is something that it's not like he is fully willing to accept like oh yes i am the messiah i am here to say you know it's not Something I think the best example of that would be when I believe it's in Harry Potter that uh, Dumbledore says about 
not seeking leadership, but being a leader. I'm I'm trying to remember the mm, I don't quote. Know. Uh, I I'm well in in this one there is a quote from Duke Leto where he's mm-hmm. like you know great leaders don't seek to lead they're called to it. Yeah, in this movie there's definitely that quote and I I do remember that for sure. Uh, but I, I guess I was just trying to, you know, tie in the other stories that have this same basic principle mm. about a leader or a chosen one as their storytelling device. That's why mm. I was trying to tie it in. But uh, I just uh, completely mangled the quote, whatever it is that, <laughs> um, that sh- you know, she said or Dumbledore said. OK, so now in this movie, I feel like we didn't get enough. Of Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa has some very good scenes, but he is out too quick. Uh, he speaking about too quick. That other character, Jameis. Yes, Jameis. He duels Timothee's Paul at the end of the movie, and Paul kills him, like strikes him down. Yeah, and it's almost seen as like a rite of passage. Like this is his journey to becoming what he's supposed to be he has to kill this dude in this ritual fight but in his visions that man is still there and the visions haven't manifested yet so like does the man get resurrected (laughs) like does he have a twin like what's going on right i have a theory on this obviously i can't prove it but i have a theory on it okay so when Paul is seeing the visions of Jameis talking to him and, you know, basically helping him with the path. He's got an Obi-Wan vibe to him. Yes. Position. Yeah. Now here, here's something that I noticed about that. Jameis is talking towards the camera, but we don't see who he's talking to. Right. So this is my thing. So I'm using the context of the movie and what the character is supposed to, you know, be. Paul is supposed to be the mind that can bridge time and space. What I'm guessing, and this is just a theory, I could be completely wrong, but maybe he is envisioning at that time when he sees it, he's envisioning Jameis's talk with maybe Chani. Maybe he was supposed to be the Obi-Wan figure for Chani and he was seeing that as he was guiding that dragonfly plane, uh, you know, through the sandstorm. So maybe he is seeing not only his own visions, but he could tap into other things that are happening at the same time. That is just a theory of mine, just because of the fact that that's where his story is supposed to lead that he is supposed to be able to use that mind as the great device to be able to tap into something that Spice can never do. I'm just saying. That is a theory of mine. That's just <laughs> oh, a man. theory. I People could be are missing our faces. Wrong. Completely pe- wrong. Yeah, you could be wrong. But um, I will say that we're making like some crazy faces over here and you guys can't see that what we're doing. So I apologize. Um, yeah, I, I'm very interested to see how they that plays out. If it's in fact visions of Chani's Obi-Wan moments with Jameis. But, 
you know, we'll figure it out if they green light a next movie. Yeah. Um, Josh Brolin again, definitely alive. So. Oh, for sure. If you 100%. don't see a body, that man's alive. If you don't see a body. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we see him running into the battle against the Harkonnens, uh, but we don't see anything else. So we don't see the body. So, yeah, there, he's not dead yet until we see a body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we'll see how his story wraps up on that side. Uh, real quick, I I wanted to I wanted to go back to the Dumbledore quote because I I did find it, <laughs> and it it was horribly mangled by me. But it, it, this is what he said: "It is a curious thing, but perhaps those who are best suited to power are those who have never sought it. Those who have leadership thrust upon them and then take up the mantle because they must, and find to their own surprise that they wear it well." So that is what I'm saying in terms of the whole chosen one. Uh, it's you. it's the characters that don't seek it out mm-hmm. that usually are the best at equipping the leadership role. Moving along, though, um, because we are starting to run long in the tooth. I wanted to bring up the visual design of the movie. I think that I love the cinematography. I think there's one little quibble I have is that so many of the sci-fi movies in the last 10 to 15 years outside of Star Wars have a very like muted color palette where everything feels either like light sepia or light gray. Uh, that's one slight complaint that I have that it's going to date all the movies of this era, science Valid. fiction movies mm-hmm. of this era. Uh, so that's one quibble I have. Uh, I did like the designs of like some of the ships, not all of them, some of them, like especially mm-hmm. like the dragonfly ships, like those were very interesting designs on how to fly around. Mm-hmm. I was not a big fan of, I don't know, the interdimensional tube that the ships were coming out of in space. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> Weird it looking. uses the spice to fold. Yes, space. It does. It does use the spice to fold space to be able to travel into what is interdimensional, not interdimensional, but you know, you travel. Know, you through, get it. Travel yeah. through space. Uh, I, I really found myself as the movie was going on. I really found myself like excited, learning about new things. Hmm. I really. That's what really captured me is like oh learning about this learning about how the suits are learning about the different cultures learning about if you notice there's no computers or like technology like that in here Mm -mm. everything is still pretty like being based even doctors the doctor who is for house atreides he he doesn't have like any type of gear that he uses. No, he is like basically like touching the people and being yeah. able to diagnose them by right. just touch. I don't know if the spice or if it's something else that they're using that helps diagnose them, but mm-hmm. I I appreciate that it doesn't date itself by having technology. I will say the one caveat for me is regarding the technology is that when they were in the dragonfly planes or whatever those are, they were all wearing headphones. And I was like, those are clearly headphones. So, yeah, they were, you know, I was like, <laughs> oh, 
they like, still need a way to communicate. <laughs> yeah, I, was like, okay. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, I think that a lot of the visual storytelling is what captured me. And also learning about something that I've never read the book, even though I own it. I own the book, but I've never you read it. You swore up and down that you were going to read Dune yeah, before the movie came out. I know. What happened, Rico? You know, here's one thing. This is a side note. When I find out that a movie is being made out of a book, I won't read the book. Because I much rather watch the the way it's presented. The film like, vision. I like a film vision. And if I'm inclined, I'll go back and I'll read with that vision in my head. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because I don't like a lot of people are different than me here. People love reading and like immersing themselves in the in the in the world and then get completely disappointed when they go to watch a movie and sure. like some of their favorite things are taken out. I don't want that disappointment. <laughs> you know? Like there's gonna yeah. be things that most likely are in the book that I'm gonna find fascinating and be like, wait, why wasn't this in there? You know? I've seen it both ways. I've done it both ways where I've read the of book course. and then I watch a movie and vice versa. And I find that it's two completely different like art. You well, know what yeah, I'm saying? It it's two completely different art forms. And I appreciate both for whether it's chicken and the egg, you know, sometimes it's like the movie comes out and then the book comes out because they bought the rights while the book was being published. And it's like all this craziness. But I think ultimately I have way more grace than most people that read the book before and then go watch the movie. I feel like people need to just kind of relax about about that sometimes. Can I can I say something? Yes, controversial. Oh God, controversial. Yo, yo, book reader, shut the hell up. Oh my God, shut the hell up when it comes to like movie adaptations, like especially especially like Harry Potter readers who like they're 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 up and down complaining. Oh, it's not as good as the book. (laughs) Shut up, shut up. (laughs) Like, I don't care about reading the book, so don't ruin it for me by saying, oh, they forgot this or they didn't put in this. It's not as good. Man, I don't care. I don't care. (laughs) You enjoy your book. I'll enjoy the movie. And that's it. That's it. Yeah, I uh, in some respects, I I agree with you. But then other times I'm like, wow, I really was looking forward to X, Y, Z. I will say this. I'm not out here with the pickets and like making TikToks and reels about like my disappointment. So a good a good adaptation, Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is a great adaptation. Great adaptation because it leaves stuff in the book that is not necessary for the movie. It completely changes character motivations and personalities to fit for a new vision. For the well, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like right. Hammond is like straight up evil in the book. Right. But in here in, in, in the, the movie, he's benevolent. Like it, the list right. goes on. But yeah. I I truly think that the best movie adaptations take the essence of the book. Yes. And, thank you. You know, because make it. you can't put everything from a book you in a movie. Can't. You can't. Yeah. And people like complain about that. And again, using Harry Potter as the example, because it's the biggest one that people use. It's like they want all of Goblet of Fire in the movie. And I'm like, (laughs) you can't fit all of it. Like whatever is missing 
you may love that part. You may enjoy that moment in the book or something, but it may not translate well on screen or it may not be, you know, that vital to the main story that you're trying to tell as a filmmaker. So as a filmmaker, you have to pick and choose. You have to be like, I don't know if this works. I don't know if that works. Like, for example, Dune. I personally cannot tell you my feelings on it because I haven't read it, but I have seen people who have said that there is one specific scene that maybe could have made more sense in the movie, and it's a dinner scene that takes place before the betrayal from the doctor Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that leans in and lets you know a little bit more about the character motivations and the house allegiances as well. So maybe it's necessary, maybe it's not, but obviously Denis Villeneuve had to make a choice. Like he couldn't make the movie that long. You know, the movie's already two hours 30. It's already almost three hours and he slowed down the pace of the movie so that it could fit this time frame and he could basically have his way with it and have the shots he wanted, have the conversations he wanted with the characters. And like, (laughs) imagine the entire story being in that time frame. We would have the exact opposite complaint. Like, why why is he going so fast? Like doing this X, Y, Z, you know? The movie doesn't breathe or doesn't let things naturally evolve or anything like that so mm-hmm. so, so again there's complaints either I, damned way. if you do damned if you don't exactly it's the biggest catch 22 whenever we're dealing with a book to movie adaptation right i wanted to ask you before we get out of here or anything are there things that maybe if you don't know the full story of of dune or maybe if you watch the first movie the 1984 which i've heard only goes just a little bit after where this movie stops. Is there something that you're hoping for or there's some type of anticipation for this second half? Because again, I don't know it because I haven't read it. So is there something you're hoping for in the story? I'm hoping that the chemistry between Zendaya and Timothée is amazing because they obviously are pushing for a, real, a romantic relationship between these two characters. It's telegraphed. That's not a spoiler. No. Um. So I'm looking forward to that, and I hope that they deliver on that. Very interested to see how they incorporate the Emperor in, if they even do yeah, it. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm interested who knows? in that. Like, who would they even cast to be the Emperor? Are they going to switch up the look of the Emperor? Because he kind of just looks like human in the 1984 version but they've already taken some liberties with the Harkonnens and their look and their whole planet's aesthetic so what are they going to do for the emperor is it going to look more like regular (laughs) royals in in our society today or or what is the um, emperor's daughter going to have a bigger role or a non-existent role in the upcoming part two because she's actually the narrator of the 1984 (laughs) version there you go and like what's her deal like they do mention her in part one they say uh timothy is like oh like why don't i just forge an alliance with the emperor because he has a daughter that's unmarried and like whatever 
everyone's like, you're going to marry into the emperor's family. <laughs> he wants you dead so, already. Yeah. So um, what what's going to go on with there? So lots of different seeds that I'm wondering how they're going to deliver. I'm also interested in Lady Jessica. Yes, her her and her child, yeah. Her and her child. And also, like, how is that relationship with Paul going to be now? Now that they're out in the desert among the, so, the Fremen. I'm not really thinking it's going to be too different. But they could change it for this director's vision. Like, maybe there is a little bit of tension or um, indifference that comes up between them going forward because there is a time jump of a few years so i don't know i don't know hopefully with this time jump it allows timidee maybe to put on just a little bit of muscle just a little bit you know i never said muscle i just okay. said <laughs> i just said i don't want him to look like a little boy so maybe just a tad bit of facial hair i don't know what they're gonna do to him whether they decide hey you need to eat more protein or they're like hey we'll stick some fake hair on you like i don't know what they're gonna do but the uh the paul atreides that ends the series i feel should look different yes you know than the one that starts it one that has gone through a lot to yes and that's not what they did in the original 1984 version like he looks the same in the beginning and end of the movie but but this is just my us personal request. <laughs> yes. Right. Fair enough. And I, I can totally see that as a request. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Allow us to see a, a Paul who's gone through it pretty much is kind of how yeah. we're envisioning this. What does the Messiah look like? A fully formed. Fully formed, fully realized. Yeah. So, yeah. So th those are a couple of things that we are looking forward to. Yep. Uh, the Emperor is probably the biggest thing. If they if they do and it incorporate it. has big shoes to fill because the Emperor that if you say like sci-fi Emperor, you think Emperor from Star Wars. Right. Palpatine. Palpatine. So I wonder if they're going to try and, you know, make the Emperor look a certain way. We shall see once they greenlight this because I'm going to speak it into existence. They're yes. greenlighting it. <laughs> They're gonna green light it. Who would yes. you cast real quick for Oof. to be the emperor? Emperor, emperor. Damn, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm thinking. Uh, I kind of want them to tap like <laughs> Ian McKellen or something. Okay. <laughs> like a really cool, like older veteran actor. Right. I wasn't thinking that old. Right. I mean, he's still, I, you could bring back Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart was in the original movie. He was. And he played um, Josh Brolin's character, Gurney. Like, that would be cool if he plays the Emperor. That would be an know. interesting I'm just way throwing of... some names out. It right. You, you are throwing some names out there. Um, those are interesting. Just but then ones. you would have the daughter as well. If they I don't do know. the storyline that way. It just depends on how they, yeah. yeah. If they even want to. I kind of would love to see tension build there. What do you mean? Between, like a love triangle or just... Maybe. Maybe a love you know. triangle. Who okay. knows? Who knows? <laughs> anyway, 
So I think we're done. <laughs> I think we're done. But these have been our thoughts on the movie Dune. Yes. 2021 by Deli- Denny Villeneuve. <laughs> Man, I struggled with that saying. Well, right I'm there. worse, so yeah. better you than me. <laughs> I think you were, what were you saying? Denny's I don't know. Villanueva? I don't want to go back to yeah. Villanueva. Yeah, that yeah. was saying Villanueva. Yeah, he's French, so definitely a different pronunciation. So that those have been our thoughts. If you have thoughts on the movie Dune, whether you liked it, hated it, prefer the 1984 version over this one, uh, only accept the book as the only way to experience Dune, let us know. At Always Critic Pod, you can find us on social media. That's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. You can find us at Always Critic Pod. If you haven't subscribed yet, first off, thank you for listening to this episode. We really appreciate it. Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That goes a long way for us as we are trying to become official Rotten Tomatoes reviewers. So every five-star review counts. So please do that. Finally, if you haven't done so yet and are a fan of the show, consider becoming a patron. That goes a long way for us to be able to continue to make great content, not only for the main feed, but also for additional feeds, such as K Rambles, Daybok Podcast, yep. yes. which is our second show, which right now is in the off season. We did a complete season one, plus we have a special episode on Squid Game, which That's right. is all I the rage. It is all the rage. <laughs> so... Jessica and my brother Miguel Alberison did that episode, so check that out. That is ATC Presents K Rambles Podcast. Yes. And uh, there could be, possibly, this is a tease, but possibly a TV version of this show just to follow along with some pretty high-profile shows that are coming down the road such as Hawkeye is coming out. Uh, Also, uh, the Book of Boba Fett comes out near the end of the year. Also, at the beginning of next year, The Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. So, stuff like that. We are looking at possibilities of making that happen as following episode by episode. We'll see if we complete that, but we could use your help. Patreon.com slash alwayscriticpod. That will be the way that we can make that happen. Now, that has been it for this episode. Catch us next week. We are going to talk about Marvel's The Eternals. That is the next movie that we are doing. Uh, Also another star-studded cast by an Academy Award-winning director. So uh, we'll see how that movie turns out. But let's go ahead and wrap that up here. That's been today's episode. I'm Rico. And I'm Jessica, and this has been the Always the Critic Podcast.